statues of the 13th century St. Francis of Assisi, maybe in a backyard, maybe holding a dish of birdseed. Most of us think of his love of animals and his compassion for human beings living in poverty. He's less well known for another part of his story, his dramatic entry into religious life. Francis was the only son of a rich couple who made their money selling luxury textiles. When young Francis walked around in his beautiful clothes, he was a visible sign of his parents' financial success. On the day when he finally answered Christ's persistent call to give up all of his possessions, Francis' renunciation of his parents' wealth was even more spectacular than his clothes were. He stood in, this town, in the town square, stripped off all of his clothes, and handed them back to his father. Every sketch in front of the whole town. Francis' actions were inspired by a reading from Matthew's Gospel, which he heard just before his conversion. In it, Jesus tells his disciples to rely on charity for everything but the clothes on their backs. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. So Francis took these words of Jesus and went, wonder. Four more samples, depending on how you look at them. To serve God, Francis gave up the wealth and lived on whatever he could, learn, he could earn by his own labor or beg from others. He refused to own property. He took to its logical extreme the final line of today's gospel reading. You cannot serve God and wealth. So that's Francis. What about the rest of us? In today's parable of the shrewd manager, sometimes called the dishonest steward, Jesus isn't just talking to saints like Francis. He's addressing his disciples. That's you and me, anyone who has committed to follow Jesus. It's a good thing the final line of the story is clear, because not much else about it is. Who is the rich man? Who is the manager? And who are the debtors? Where do you and I fit into the story? Interpreters of the parable of the shrewd manager, and there have been hundreds of them over the centuries, just can't agree. In fact, a footnote to one translation of this passage says, the parable defies any fully satisfactory explanation. <laughs> the story starts simply enough. A rich man suspects his manager has been cheating him, so he fires the manager. The rich man is probably an absentee landlord who rents out his land to farmers in exchange for a share of their crops. His manager keeps the accounts, giving him plenty of room to cheat both the landlord and the tenants, should he be so inclined. We don't know if the manager is innocent or guilty, but we do know he's out of a job. He thinks over his options. Not strong enough to make a living by manual labor, too proud to pay. 
He'll have nowhere to go when he gets thrown off his employer's land. The manager realizes he'll have to secure his future by his wits, so he decides to make friends in a hurry. He cuts one tenant's debt by 50% and another by 20%. He does all this quickly, as you heard in the gospel meeting, before word gets around that he's been fired and has actually <coughs> lost the authority to act on the landlord's behalf. You and I might expect the landlord to be angry when he finds out. Instead, he's impressed. Jesus tells us his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The story leaves us with all kinds of questions. When the manager slashes the tenant's debts, is he cutting into the amount they owe his employer, cheating the landlord out of his lawful rent? Or is he cutting prices he himself had inflated in the first place? Some commentators speculate that the manager had been overcharging the tenants for years and keeping the surplus. That's why he was fired. In that reading, he reduces the tenant's bills by subtracting his own take. But in either case, why would the landlord compliment him? Why isn't he angry? The landowner may simply admire shrewd business practices. Maybe he's impressed that the manager has secured his future by putting the tenants in his debt. He's done them a favor and they'll owe him the next time he comes knocking on their door. They'll owe his employer a favor too, which may end up being worth more than the lost jugs of olive oil or bushels of wheat. But more to the point for you and me, why does Jesus compliment the manager? His words sound approving. The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. The children of light are Jesus' disciples. He seems to be saying we don't have good business sense. For some of us, that may be true. But not all of us. What about Jesus' next line? Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. My New Oxford Annotated Bible gives one common interpretation of that verse. The dishonest manager was prudent in using the things of this life to ensure the future. Believers should do the same. I'm not sure that's what Jesus is saying. It sounds to me as if he's being ironic, which he frequently was. Wouldn't Jesus discourage you and me from gaining dishonest wealth in the first place, instead of encouraging us to use it to make friends? And how could those friends welcome us into the eternal homes? Only God will do that. So Jesus then muddies the waters further. If you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? That sounds like he's criticizing the manager for not being faithful with his employer's wealth. Or maybe it's the landowner who's in the wrong. 
God entrusted land to him, and now he's using it to squeeze everything he can out of his tenants. Are you confused yet? <laughs> Truly, we could debate the elements of this parable forever. Maybe that's what On some level, the story is about making our way in this world without losing sight of the next. Keeping our eyes on the prize, not letting ourselves or each other forget whom we serve. That's complicated business. But figuring out the line between serving God and serving well is not so complicated that Jesus will give us a pass on trying. Jesus' bottom line, you cannot serve God and well, echoes the message God's prophets have hammered home for millennia. In our Old Testament reading today, Amos warns of the dangers of putting well first. He warns us about the dangers of living in a world whose priorities are out of order, in which, as he says, silver is valued more highly than the poor, and a new pair of sandals is more important than a needy neighbor. In that world, which is this world, the cost of doing business can be counted all too often in human misery. Not just numbers on a spreadsheet, but fathers thrown out of work and secretaries cheated out of their pensions. Each of us can probably think of situations in our own life and work when we've had to choose between what's right and what's profitable. These challenges even come up in the church. I was once a member of a parish a long time ago before I was ordained a parish with an endowment of almost $3 million. Year after year, the church's stewardship felt campaigns fell flat because its members figured, why it? The church is rich. Some members argued for spending a chunk of the endowment on ambitious outreach programs. Others wanted to renovate the building or maybe invest in affordable housing while still others were horrified at the idea of spending an inheritance that had taken generations to accumulate. We had $3 million, and we argued about money all the time. A guest preacher who knew our church well finally stood up in the pulpit one morning, looked out over the congregation, and said, I don't see a church. I see a bunch of people who sit around and haggle with bags of money. Her words hurt, as you might imagine, but she spoke the truth. We were letting our wealth get in the way of our mission rather than serve our mission. As far as I can tell, St. Louis doesn't have those problems. <laughs> we do have some assets, and we have relatively little debt, but we don't have so much money it paralyzes us. We're mainly supported by gifts from our own members and a fundraiser for In 
in some ways, we're in a similar position to St. Francis soon after he stripped off his clothes in his hometown square. He was willing to go naked to follow Christ, but he didn't stay unclothed for long. The story of Francis' conversion tells us that a passing bishop took off his own robe and wrapped it around Francis. Soon, 12 men had joined Francis to live as brothers in a new form of religious life. And within four years, Francis' friend, St. Clair, had founded a similar order for women. When these friends in Christ joined together, when they pooled what they had, and when they became willing to take gifts from like-minded people, they found that they had more than enough to sustain them and to share with their neighbors in need. The witness of Francis, Claire, and their siblings still beckons Christians today. They remind you and me that times when we're vulnerable are an opportunity to focus on what we really need. And when we're making a fresh start, that's an opportunity to focus on what matters most. When we're not sitting around haggling over bags of money, we're free to be the church. We're free to invest whatever wealth we do have, our money, our skills, our time, in extending to our neighbors here in Durham the community and support that we've found at St. Louis. And with God's help, this church will always reflect something of the glory of that eternal home where we all hope to be welcomed.